Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're exploring one legendary location that stands out among so many others. It serves as a kind of Gothic cathedral to the arts. It's in this space that we've marveled at the grace and sophistication of ballet. We've been transformed by the elegance of a symphony orchestra, and we've been drawn in by the power of the human voice, amplified in choruses that fill the stage from wing to wing. One National Historic Landmark, built in the late 19th century, provides space for us to rise above our daily routines. Its performances offer proof that we are more than simple organisms surviving one day to the next. It reminds us of the power of spirit, the power of creation, the power of seeing the world and ourselves in a different light. We've cherished performing arts since the first Homo sapiens began dancing and chanting around crackling fires. Since then, we've devoted entire buildings to these arts. And the design of such buildings, their architecture, often reflect the lofty visions and transcendent power of performance. Such is true for the location we are exploring today. I'm talking about Cincinnati's Music Hall. The Cincinnati Music Hall is a treasured location to so many, for so many reasons. But what does it have to do with folklore? Plenty, I assure you. In fact, I can't imagine another spot I've researched so far that has such an abundance of macabre history, laying fertile ground for the juiciest of lore to take root. In one sense, it's hard to imagine how this place could escape a haunted reputation, even if it tried. Luckily, those who represent the music hall, its staff, its patrons, and its adoring fans have come to embrace the spirits who linger on its stage, in its hallways, and in its many nooks and crannies. Claims of eerie, unexplained sounds and feelings of being watched are too numerous to count. These experiences are easy for skeptics to swat away as fragments of an overcharged imagination. What's harder to dismiss, however, are repeated sightings of apparitions known to haunt the place. On some occasions, photographic evidence of such manifestations have been captured. One example of this went viral in June 2016. Matthew Zori, a bass player with the Cincinnati Pops and Symphony Orchestra, had a side passion of photography. The hall was undergoing major renovations at the time, so he decided to take some pictures to document the progress. He'd taken two long exposures at the exact same spot in the emptied auditorium. The seats had all been removed for the renovations, leaving a spacious tilted floor, punctuated by elegant columns holding up the balcony above. One exposure shows nothing out of the ordinary, just as you'd expect. The other captured a misty, transparent, amber-colored shape, seeming to hover before the lens. You can see the copyrighted picture for yourself by doing an internet search for Cincinnati Music Hall Ghost Photo. The picture received so much attention that it was soon picked up by the local TV station, WCPO, 
It ran a story on the unexplained anomaly, telling their viewers what so many of them had already known, that this historic location continues gathering evidence of the unexplained, even from those who aren't looking for it. So just what might account for these endless claims, which have accumulated over the century and a half of its existence? To be honest, the possible origins of ghost stories are so numerous, it's almost comical. To start, the land on which the hall was constructed was once a potter's field, the final resting place for those who had no funds for burial and no loved ones to bury them. Cincinnati's infamous cholera outbreak in 1832, produced more victims than could be dispersed of with proper rights. Most graves were left unmarked and unattended. This vicious outbreak left hordes of orphaned children, many of whom would come to live in the orphanage that was soon constructed next to the site itself. And in the city's attempt to contain infectious diseases of all sorts, the orphanage would later serve the dual purpose of a pest house. All those with ailments of some contagious variety were sent to live there, just to keep them away from the rest of the citizenry. Many died and were buried next door, with no coffin, with no funeral, and with no one to mourn them. We'll get into greater detail on the location's dark history a little later in the episode. But for now, let's take a journey into the haunting space itself. For you avid Ohio folklore fans, you may remember an interview with Mr. Dan Schneider, which was included in the Ohio Penitentiary episode posted in November 2019. I've had the great fortune to reconnect with this paranormal investigator for today's subject. You can find Dan's Facebook group easily by searching for Ohio Gothic. This group's aim is to research paranormal history, arcane legends, and cryptic creatures of Ohio. Dan has graciously agreed to share what he describes as his most dramatic ghost hunting experience yet, caught on audio, while investigating a freight elevator at, you guessed it, Cincinnati Music Hall. Dan had taken a public tour of the building, which concluded with the opportunity to do a little ghost hunting of his own. He jumped at the chance, having been well acquainted with the building's reputation for frequent ghost activity. What you're about to hear is a 10-second clip of what happened just as he was packing up his equipment. Having spent some time in the elevator and getting no detectable responses, he assumed he was out of luck and began gathering his things to leave. You'll hear some shuffling and zipping sounds, which are Dan's movements, followed by two knocks, then two more forceful knocks, and a loud rolling sound, and then a huge bang. Those noises were decidedly not made by Dan. In fact, it scared the crap out of him, which you'll note by the beeped curse word he uttered. The elevator's floor was shaking during the commotion, but nothing else was moving. I'll play the sound twice so you can get a good listen. Also, if you want a sense of what the elevator looks like, you'll be able to find the pictures at ohiofolklore.com. For now, take a listen to these inexplicable sounds. 
Now that you've heard it for yourself, let's take a listen to Dan's own theories on just what happened. Come, hear his story. So I was so glad when I heard back from you that you were willing to share that story because it stuck in my head when we talked last. Yeah, sure. it was it was one that always sticks in my head too. And I, I was surprised when I was looking up the files that it's going on. It'll be ten years this October that it happened. Is it really ten years already? Didn't seem that long ago, but. Right, and I just received the pictures you sent me too, which are really good for me to get a mental image of, you know, what was happening. Maybe if I could ask you just to start telling the story of how your investigation came to be there. It was part of, they offered public investigations. They uh, did, did a tour, and then you were allowed to just go off on your own. So first place I wanted to go was that freight elevator because that's where I always heard the stories about, you know, because they found the bodies and because they used to be the cemetery and it was the orphanage and the, the poorhouse and the cemetery, okay. which also includes Washington Park across the street. So I was in there and I set up my, I had a camera running, an IR camera and you know, my sound recorders running and Actually, on that audio clip I sent you, I was, you know, nothing happened. I was packing up. You could hear me zipping up zippers, putting stuff away. And I luckily still had the recorder running. And the whole elevator just started shaking and made that loud noise. And I dove out. But you can see the door in the one photo I sang. I I jumped out that door because I thought the whole thing was going to go crashing down. That's a loud sound on your recording there. Yeah. Yeah. And then it just stopped. So when I talked to one of the guys afterwards and I played it back for him, he's like, there's no reason that should be doing that because the only way to even get those to operate is if you have a key, if you're in there and you have a key, or if you're on another floor and you, you can call it to another floor with a key. Because so they used to use that for, they had exhibition halls in there. And they actually, I think when they, you might have, it's been a while since I did any research on this, but I think they enlarged the elevator shafts. I want to say they did it one time back in the 20s because they were doing like basically car shows. They, were, you know, the automobiles knew, and they had this whole wing where they did all kinds of industrial shows and stuff. And they they were making it so they could bring cars in and display them. Mm-hmm. And I think that would that might have been the first time they found some remnants of bodies. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh- Mm-hmm. What I was reading is in the 20s, 1927, I think to be exact, they um, did some renovations, and, and especially with the elevator shaft, and they found some bones, uh, but they just buried them at the bottom of the shaft. That's right. They reburied them. Mm-hmm. About that. And then yeah. wasn't it later in the 80s or 90s when they found them again that they moved, didn't they move them? Uh, yeah, 88, 88, they were doing more renovations, and they found like 200-some pounds of bones. It was way, way more. Um, that they did uh, reinter in, in Spring Grove, but it was all related to the elevator shafts. Um, yeah. yeah, but there, there's another story I remember from that night was behind the stage where they did all the, uh, the set work preparation and stuff. There was a couple guys there. Actually, one of the guys that witnesses told the story that they saw what looked like a skeleton wrapped in a shroud walk just like just walk through the room 
and down mm-hmm. went down the ramp towards where the, the photos I sent you of the uh, foundations of the old orphanage that were still under under yeah. there because he showed me that later on. Um, it just kind of walked down there and disappeared. And me and somebody else, we had our uh, EMF detectors, and they were it's something was was sending out a lot of EMF. I, I know we used to when we'd go on investigations take an EMF pump because the story is that the more electromagnetic field that's produced, the whole, it has it might produce more activity. And there was a an old clock in the back on the back wall, and it made my I had a millimeter, one of the original fancier meters that was made specifically for ghost hunting, and it aired out because it was spitting out so much EMF. So I don't know if that's what caused them to see something like like that. I mean, it sounded pretty grisly, a skeleton covered in a shroud, which was weird because that's kind of what they found in that elevator shaft was a bunch of just bones and, and rags. Yes, many skeletons, many of them very partial, um, and it, it does connect with at least the experiences they were having. Uh, and the, the paranormal stories uh, go back, way back, you know, before the music hall was even constructed itself, um, like you were mentioning, uh, where it was a potter's field, it was an orphanage. You know, if you think about it, it's almost comical. If you think about any possible folklore kind of origin story it's happened there yeah (laughs) which is so unusual for for one location to have yeah and i mean there's and i've heard stories in the in the washington park across the street and next door is memorial hall which was built after i believe was built after right after the civil war i think it was the civil war memorial Uh and there's a ghost story with that building that there's a man in a usually he's seen wearing Dark colors, most people say it's blue, it looks blue, which would be like a Union uniform. They see him in the uh, a balcony of the Memorial Hall. Yeah. Um, it's just uh, so much history connected to this. And, you know, it does make you think when it's drawn so many people like yourself doing uh, paranormal investigations, but then there's lots of accounts of people just doing their job there every day that have mm-hmm. had these unusual experiences. Is that what drew you to it initially, or do you remember what first got you interested? In interested it? in in music in hall itself, or yeah, mm-hmm. um, just hearing the stories over the years, and then it's one of those places that's it's still active, and it's still it's like one of the few hundred and some year old buildings that's still doing what it was built for. It's still hosting musical performances, so it's not an easy place to get into to do that in the middle of the night to do ghost hunts. So yeah. when I saw they were they were offering a public one, I jumped right on it. And, well, yeah, you, it was, you certainly did have something happen. And I was listening again to the, the sound that you sent me. And you hear the shuffling and then the zipping. And then there's a knock. And then there's a more forceful knock. So you didn't make those sounds? No, those were coming, those were coming mm-hmm. from the, I don't know if it was from the shaft or what. Yeah. That's when I heard that. That's when I'm like, oh no, cables are snapping. <laughs> yeah, right. Did you hear those? Something. Hear those, and then everything starts shaking, and it was like, this ain't good. And then there's like this rolling sound, which makes you think about like wheels in the shaft that the elevator car is on, or something. Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering if that was the same, if that's the sound that the doors make when they open, mm-hmm. and 
can't remember how it opened up, if it slid over or if it slid up. But I was wondering, like, because it did make that rolling sound. Uh-huh. And then there's the loud bang at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there was nothing you could see moving. No. And all that sound was happening. Ah. Just, I mean, the floor was shaking, but the elevator wasn't moving up or down. Hmm. That's why I kind of dove through the door, because I didn't know if it was going to go crashing down. And what a fright that would be just to be in an elevator and to hear those sounds. Um, yeah, my know. heart rate was up for a little while after that. Right, right. Uh, That's probably one of the most dramatic things I've happened, I've had happen on a on a ghost hunt that I can recall. Would you say that you think? I think so. Yeah. Mm. And most of the stories I hear, which may be what would happen if I would have not jumped out, is the fact that it would the elevator would move to floors on its own, even though mm-hmm. you need to have a key to operate it. Mm-hmm. That was the story I, I had always heard about it. That's why I wanted to go in there just to see if it would move. But then when it started doing that. Yeah, I did come across that account as well, and some people thought, well, maybe somebody on the upper floor called the elevator, and that's why it's moving. But, of course, they arrive at that floor, and there's no one there. No one there, yeah. Um, yeah. And that's when yeah. I talked talk to the guy there. He's like, yeah, it has to call to the floor, and, you know, I got a key, and one of the other guys has a key, and we didn't we didn't call it to any, any other floor. So I don't know if you can answer this question, but do do you have a sense that the employees there could accept that there's something unusual going on, or do they offer an opinion themselves about anything? Well, I I think whoever was running the the tour that night, which I can't, I don't remember if it was museum employees or if they had like a ghost local ghost hunting group that was coordinating it. But I think for them to even allow people to go in, they have to have some some belief. Other, I mean, there's places that they'll have stories and they won't let, they're like, no, that's not true. That's all they'll say and won't let anybody, won't, you know, that's it. Stop the questions. Nothing happens right. here. But right. I think if they're going to allow people in, I think they, they probably do think there is something there. Well, I know the one employee that I did talk to down in the in the backstage, he you know, they, they, him, it was him and there's a couple other guys that he worked with. I can't remember if they saw it or not. I just remember him telling the story. And, you know, they believe it wholeheartedly because they saw a walking skeleton, which isn't something you see every day. No. Yeah, I mean, so, that's out of like a Halloween prop or something. Yeah. <laughs> but the location, it reminds me of like um, the reformatory in Mansfield, for example, how they've really embraced this. Yeah, they, em- they embrace it wholeheartedly up there. It's, yeah. That's a great place to go. Mhm. Oh yeah, just a wondrous, wondrous building, and and to see how they they both places do the ghost tours and things like that. I think it's nice. It gets people kind of interested and fascinated, but then also gets their foot in the door for the the remarkable history. Yeah, and that that's what I, when I worked, right? I volunteered with Columbus Landmarks when I lived mm-hmm. up in Columbus and did a lot of the ghost tours, and that's what I'd always tell people. It's like you know, you can. Tell people you're going to take them on a history tour and, you know, tell them about the buildings. You know, you might get, you'll get a smaller group of people. But if you say you're doing a ghost tour, basically doing the same exact tour and then just throw in one of the stories that have developed around that building, you know, we would get a lot of people coming out for the for the tours. We'd sell out a lot of most of the ghost tours, if not all of them. When There's something, read- um, something about when you engage the person's curiosity that it just is a force uh, all its own. Yeah, yeah. And it's the buildings are 
I mean, it's, it's just a great connection to the past. It seems some parts of our past aren't truly past at all. The historic music hall, and its freight elevator in particular, remain quite spiritually active for so many today, all these decades after it was first constructed in 1876. There's so much history we could expand on, from its original construction to its many renovations and more. That information is easily found online for any of you history and architecture buffs. However, for our purposes, I'd like to zoom in on the freight elevator itself. It played quite a role in the morbid stories that have come to surface time and again. Most every time renovations are made to Music Hall, skeletal remains are discovered. Presumably, these are the unmarked graves of those whose final resting place was the potter's field, which remains under the hall's foundations. In 1927, for example, construction of a tunnel connecting the hall to other buildings was underway. Skeletal remains, which were uncovered in the process, were reinterred at the bottom of the then-new elevator shaft. Come some 60 years later, in 1988, these same bones were again unearthed during repairs and additional construction. This excavation produced 11 skulls and more than 200 pounds of bones. They were soon removed to the city's morgue and then eventually interred in Spring Grove Cemetery. It's believed that ghost sightings within the elevator in particular are the restive spirits of those who died of poverty, infectious disease, and other circumstances we'll soon get into. Their remains were disposed of in paupers' graves. There, they remained for decades, forgotten and neglected, until one day, the living decided renovations were in order. Adding insult to injury, their final resting places were disturbed. Their remains moved to more convenient places. Their identities forever lost to the ages. Perhaps they have reason for seeking some attention, some acknowledgement. For what fate is worse than death, than a fading into anonymity? So as we're contemplating the possible origins of the restless spirits which seem to haunt this venerable institution, let's take a deep dive into one of the most compelling historical events related to the spot itself. When I came across this story in my research, I was so struck with the drama, brought by human pride and short-sightedness. What a story. Of about 150 people who lost their lives in this very human-created disaster, most were buried in the ground beneath Music Hall. Come, hear this true story of pride turned deadly. The following account is taken from contemporaneous newspaper articles of the day. The day in particular being April 25, 1838. Many articles began by expressing sorrow for having to deliver such bad news to its readers. A brand new steamboat, named the Mazelle, was built in Cincinnati shipping yards. She had just been put into use on local waterways. Cincinnatians marveled at her technological advances. She was so fast 
She'd made several trips from Cincinnati to St. Louis in a mere 16 hours. This record-breaking time promised breakthroughs in commerce and travel between the two burgeoning cities. Her captain, Isaac Perrin, was eager to repeat the accomplishment many times over, cementing the Moselle as the fastest vessel around, securing his position and the company's fortunes. At about 6 p.m. on the evening of April 25, 1838, the Moselle pulled up to the dock near the neighborhood of Fulton, on the Queen City's eastern edge of the Ohio River. She was scheduled to pick up another family of passengers, building her total number to full capacity. In the time it would take to board the last family, Captain Perrin would hold on to all the steam he could create, building greater and greater pressure within the ship's boiler system, so that on disembarking, she would race forward at a speed never before seen among ships of her size and weight. Perhaps he envisioned onlookers from both banks gawking at the sight of the Moselle, speeding by the city like a shark on the strike. As soon as the last passengers were fully boarded and settled, the captain released the steam at full force. Before her paddle wheel made even a full revolution, her boilers exploded with the force of a grenade. One man mounted on his horse, standing on the banks, happened to be watching from the shore that day. He would later tell local reporters that he gaped in horror as heads, limbs, and other various body pieces were seen mixed within the scraps of lumber and other debris shooting forth from the site. Those wounded, some in the process of dying, were shrieking, clinging to bits which remained floating on the surface. When she exploded, the Moselle was only about 30 feet from shore and immediately began to sink. The pieces which remained afloat at first, on which many passengers were clinging for life, began drifting out into the center of the river being swept away with the current as they moved downstream. Captain Perrin's body had been blown skyward, crossing more than 30 feet to shore and landed in the street. His remains were twisted and mangled, recognized only by the torn uniform which remained. Another man's torso, that of a passenger, crashed down on a riverside home hurtling through the roof and landing in the resident's living space. Fragments of various bodies remained littered through the shoreline. Blood was everywhere. As the ship continued sinking, those who had been lucky enough to escape injury from the initial explosion were now facing certain death by drowning. Many who'd been inside their cabins could be heard screaming for help. Several of them jumped into the blood-filled water in an attempt to swim for shore. The current proved much too strong for any with little experience swimming. The only rescue boats nearby were quite large and unmanageable wooden flats. Those available rushed to the scene as fast as they could, but few survivors remained above water by the time they arrived. 
One little boy, who'd somehow made it to shore on his own, was seen wringing his hands, imploring onlookers to go save his mother and siblings. They were bobbing in the waves, screaming at him to find help. He'd watch as his entire family, one by one, slipped beneath the surface of the water and drown. Remarkably, this little boy's infant brother would later be discovered to have survived. He had rested on a fragment of the deck which floated a considerable length downstream before washing ashore. When the wreck had drifted about a quarter mile downstream past a riverside brewery, about 100 survivors were still visible, either struggling to swim or clinging to jagged pieces. One woman was seen nearly reaching shore, but she collapsed from exhaustion and then slipped beneath the surface. A group of men waded out to the spot she was last seen and managed to grip her by the hair, pulling her back above the surface. Many who managed to be rescued by onlookers were brought into Riverside homes and establishments, only to later die of their fatal wounds. It's estimated that about one-half of the nearly 300 passengers and crew aboard the ship died in the hellish incident. Some newspaper reports took share of the blame for the horrible event, noting that they had previously published glowing articles on the Moselle's marvelous speed and acts of technological wonder. No doubt, some of those articles inspired some passengers who were aboard that fateful day to purchase their tickets. Calls were made for the press to change its tone in covering such advancements with an eye toward consumer safety. Safety is better than speed, concluded one article. Three days after the disaster, on April 28, 1838, a large public funeral for the victims was commenced. Only 19 of the victims had been fully identified. The other remains were so badly mangled, or often in pieces, that the majority of the victims were buried without learning their true identities. The event had been so horrific and unprecedented that Cincinnatians decided the funeral rites had to meet the moment. Indeed, the ceremony which preceded was unlike anything the city had ever before seen. Bells all across the city tolled at three o'clock signaling the close of all business activity. An estimated 20,000 mourners amassed in the streets and began a procession at the foot of Broadway Street. Every hearse in the city was commandeered for the event, and still, that wasn't enough. They led the procession, followed by ordinary carriages which transported additional remains. By the time it had reached 4th Street, the roads were clogged with humanity in all directions. Not a word was spoken among them, as all marched in silence toward the potter's field. Those who could not participate, those sick or disabled, and small children as well, could be seen huddling at windows, staring down at the solemn display below. The dead being carried to their final resting place were strangers, yet their loss was mourned and honored by those who witnessed their needless deaths.
The remains of the victims of the Moselle explosion account for only a fraction of the number of unmarked and unknown graves found beneath the foundation of Cincinnati's Music Hall. If we're to believe that ghosts most often come into being because of tragic and gruesome deaths, then perhaps this case proves the point. However, it's hard to know just how many other souls were left lonely, orphans and cholera victims, once discarded at the city's edge. Their numbers are so large, it's said you can't put a shovel in the ground beneath this structure without turning up the bones of those lost souls. So what does it mean that we have taken a location known for suffering, sorrow, and isolation, and turned it into a temple for the arts? As ironic as it might first seem, I find something transcendent in that truth. It's a radical act to stand amidst so many reminders of death and destruction and create a space that rises above it all. And in the end, I suppose that's what life is all about. We all know, at least logically, that we'll meet our own end someday. For some of us, it'll happen slowly. We'll see our death coming from a distance and note its inevitable path to our feet. Such was the case for those who succumbed to infectious disease, the symptoms building over time as they watched those around them fade into nothingness. For others of us, death will come like a sudden bolt of lightning in an otherwise calm day. We'll be going about our lives, doing what the fates require, and due to circumstances beyond our control, our light extinguishes with no chance for goodbye, and no time to even worry about it. Those lives which ended and then were entombed in the ground beneath Cincinnati's Music Hall suffered fates of all sorts. Our decision to create a monument of sorts that celebrates life, in spite of death, is quite fitting in my view. We're all here for some amount of time, albeit short in the whole grand scheme of things. One way to take a slice at death, to steal a little transcendence above it, is to devote our precious time and energy to things beyond our immediate survival. When we take the time to enjoy what we can do, make, and achieve, we're getting a little taste of what it means to exist beyond our physical selves. We're nourishing something of the spirit, something of the essence beyond our bodies. In a way, I think that's something the ghostly apparitions of the music hall might understand. As I mentioned earlier, staff and patrons alike have come to embrace the endless claims of ghostly activity in the place. You can book ghost tours, which often sell out quickly. Comers are encouraged to bring ghost hunting equipment, in hopes of capturing further evidence of the souls who remain there. But even if you're not inclined to take a formal tour, please consider attending a performance. Come be transported to another world, be that of theater, dance, or that most divine of arts, music. Come cheat your own mortality for an hour or two. Come sense the spirit beyond our own physical selves and join with other patrons on the same quest. And while you're at it, who knows, 
you might just encounter the shadow of someone who's gone before you. Their message is one worth listening to. This concludes today's episode on Cincinnati's Music Hall. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show. If you'd like to learn more, you can connect with Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.